Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. The future of talk radio. Buck Sexton. You are now entering the Freedom Hub Tactical Operations Center. All sensitive programs must be kept strictly need to know. Team Buck is cleared and ready for the Buck Brief. The Trump administration with a new executive order that is making things even more difficult and uncomfortable for Kim Jong-un and his regime in North Korea. Buck Sexton here with you now in the Freedom Hut. Thank you so much for joining. This is uh, a, a major change from what you saw with the previous administration. North Korea has been a slow moving but growing disaster for decades, North Korea has been uh, getting more aggressive and more uh, more bellicose. The different uh, the different strategies we have tried to rein it in have not worked. We may have slowed it down, but we have not changed its course. And ever since the uh, Soviets cut off their subsidies, once the Soviet Union was no more. Um, North Korea has been looking for a new patron and what the Trump administration has figured out and is willing to finally act on is that that patron is China and Russia somewhat, but mostly China. And if we are going to get anywhere, that means that you're going to have to make life more difficult, not just for the North Korean regime, which already makes life uh, unlivable and and makes life uh, heinous for so many of its own citizens, But you have to raise the stakes for neighboring powers, North Korea, I mean, uh, China and Russia, respectively. So you had this uh, announcement today. Let me before I get into what's new and what has changed today, because this is big. We're we're heading for a a pivot point here. We're, We're heading for this issue to break one way or another. If the the Trump administration, with its much more blunt, much more straightforward rhetoric, its efforts to really leverage China to put more leverage, to use its leverage against North Korea and all of the different pieces that are in play right now, the full force of the United States government devoted to this issue and the much more uh, realistic and believable threat of action down the line against North Korea from the administration if something doesn't change. With all of that in place right now, we can expect that there will be a there will be a major move with North Korea one way or the other. I don't know what it is. I can't predict the future. But the status quo does not seem to be sustainable here. Whereas in the past, I had thought this is just going to move down the same pathway. Sanctions, more talk, more sanctions, more talk. Things are a little a little different now. The Trump administration is openly speaking. Multiple officials are openly speaking about a possible Military action in the future, not imminent, 
but a possible military action against North Korea. They're not just saying that it's an option that's on the table. They're saying it's an option that North Korea might force us to use at some point. This is a change in tone. This matters. North Korea is a problem for the international community. It's a problem for us, for our allies, for Japan, for South Korea, for countless people all over the world who may be put at risk by proliferation from North Korea of nukes and other weapons, I should note, uh, by the North Korean support for uh, the worst regimes. It is not just a problem for the Korean Peninsula. So the Trump administration has decided that no more strategic patience, which is a fancy way of saying sit on your hands and don't do anything, or sit on your hands and just let things continue as as is. That was the Obama administration, strategic patience. Remember, on, on the Korean Peninsula, on East Asia and security matters there, it was strategic patience, which is a fancy way of saying uh, don't do anything worthwhile. And on Libya, it was leading from behind, which is a fancy way of saying we're going to let other countries do a fair bit of the fighting and we're going to break this country and let it devolve into chaos and think that that makes us much smarter than Bush. So we are seeing a change here in the posture, and uh, th- this is a high-stakes game. I-, I, do not, I do not think that's an overstatement at all because th- they're now going after uh, they're now going after the the regime in a way that it will feel it. Now, it might not be enough. It might not change course. And there's always the possibility that cornering North Korea actually makes the situation even more precarious. And that is what we are trying to do. I mean, people can use analogies and uh, people can talk about tightening the noose around North Korea. They can talk about boxing North Korea and all these different uh, metaphors and analogies and such that we can throw out there. They are true, but they have their own consequences. But I, I want to note that there seems to be a bipartisan agreement, at least from the people that share their opinions and can get attention for them on this issue, right, in the press and the politics and everything else, that North Korea is a major threat, that it is unsustainable. It is such a vile and despotic and evil regime that it is really the one country, and this is quite a distinction, because there are plenty of liberals there are plenty of Democrats and leftists, you know, and, and, and celebrities. Oh, my gosh. Celebrities love to pick out um, despotic totalitarian regimes and give them high fives and befriend them. They'll do that for uh, for Cuba. They'll do it for Venezuela, although less now because Venezuela is really bad, but they'll still do it for Cuba. Um, they will. Uh, they would do it for Saddam Hussein in Iraq. We remember that they they will do it now for Iran North Korea is the one exception. North Korea is so vile as a regime. I feel terrible for its people. They are enslaved in a concentration camp above ground and a mass grave below it. But the regime is so evil and so cartoonishly evil. I mean, so blatantly insidious that you don't even you don't have Democrats that will stand up for it or try to mitigate or everyone agrees North Korea is really bad. And everyone says that they want to do something about it. But you'll notice the Obama administration for eight years did essentially very little. It was status quo. Yes, keep the sanctions. I'm not going to say that there was a big thaw in relations and he was all hugs with North Korea. That's not true. But there was not a willingness to make difficult choices to try and confront the regime. We are seeing now, and it's a change in tone. It's a change from the way 
the White House and the top national security figures of the Trump administration view this, approach this, and I think are willing to deal with this. And you've got uh, North Korea, uh, Kim Jong-un, saying that Trump will pay, quote, pay dearly for his threat. So there is a war of words going on here as well. But keep in mind that with North Korea, the entire uh, the entire legitimacy of the regime is based on military power and a, an ability and willingness to stand up to outside threats. That's how the regime justifies itself. And then there's also an angle of, of uh, racial purity and there's a tremendous xenophobia. And that's a bit further into the weeds here. But, but military power, the promise of reunifying, reunification of the Korean Peninsula by force and taking on the world. And you even see this in some of the imagery used of North Korea with Kim Jong-il before Kim Jong-un. They like to show him standing on the shore and with, with waves crashing on the shore. And the idea being that the imagery was that the whole world was trying to take him down, but he was standing tall and standing proud. With Kim Jong-un, you should note that while a lot of comedians and people, people will say, oh, look at the little pudgy fat boy and all this stuff. You know, anyone can do that, okay? The, the, the guy's eating habits do not bother me one bit. It bothers me that the rest of his country doesn't get to eat at all. The uh, more rotund Kim Jong-un and the way that they dress him and his haircut, yeah, you have a lot of pundits that say, oh, look at his hair. They're trying to evoke a direct comparison between Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-un, Kim Il-sung being the grandfather, the original founder of the North Korean state. That's why you get that Mao uniform that he wears all the time. That's why he has that haircut. Him being portly was is also a way of connecting him visually to his, to his grandfather, who was viewed as the father of the North Korean state the founder and father figure of the North Korean state. And they often, there are murals of him. He's hugging little kids and he was like everybody's dad. So we can mock and make jokes, but this is a very serious problem. And a lot of what's going on over there, we have to stop viewing it from our own perspective. Stop uh, listening to late night comedians, which we shouldn't listen to them about anything about North Korea about the Trump administration. And we certainly should stop listening to the press who says things like this about Trump's speech at the U.N. That was a dark speech today at the United Nations. President Trump warned that parts of the world are going to hell. It's really frightening to hear an American president talk about obliterating any other country. That borders on the threat of committing a war crime. Do you think that that kind of language and that kind of mocking is helpful? Back to this use of the word sovereign and sovereignty. Did you hear a buzzword or a dog whistle? It's a very aggressive speech. It was a very interventionist speech. Bombastic, overly rhetorical, aggressive. He was a preacher up there, given his dark... Dark world view. It's cloaked in a very dark, ominous rhetoric. The tone of it uh, was really bad. His speech weakened America. Almost as the bookend to the American Carnage inaugural address. It was that doom and gloom. He's talking about going back to the 19th century. It was pretty, pretty bullying. It was internally inconsistent. Uh, it was full of bombast and threats. I've never heard those, those, I know I can name all those different pundits by their voices, I haven't heard of them speak with such animosity towards the North Korean regime. You know, I, I don't hear them talking about, oh, you know, look at this. It's so dark and ominous from Kim Jong-un. 
once again from our liberal press, Trump is the problem. You have a dictator who starves starves his own people, keeps them in a constant state. It is believed that one third right now of North Korea is in a state of quasi starvation. The stories of malnutrition across. Remember, this is a country with millions and millions of people. Uh, Stories of malnutrition across all levels, except maybe at the very elite level of North Korea. But people are malnourished. They are, I think it's five inches on average shorter. Maybe it's three inches on average average shorter than their South Korean counterparts. Uh, They can be executed for having a Bible or a crucifix. They are sent to prison camps where there's a multi-generational punishment policy in effect. So if your father is considered a uh, an enemy of the regime, you will also, as the son gets sent to the camp, and if you have kids, your kids will get sent. It's three generations that they will punish to purify the North Korean people. And by punish, they, they mean hard labor in a gulag until you die and you are abused and raped and beaten at the whim of the guards all along. That country where the leader calls for the execution of his brother with VX gas, that country where there are reports that he executes uh, senior military members that are in disfa- that are, lose his favor with anti-aircraft weapons, just to make a point. That country is testing the most devastating and most frightening weapons imaginable and getting better at them and getting closer to being able to drop one of those on any U.S. city. And the press is calling Trump dark and ominous and worrisome. You know, at some point, I do want to ask, what team are they on? Who who are they rooting for? They're not rooting for the North Koreans. Because if it was up to them, they would just let the North Koreans stay in perpetuity, this state of slavery. They're not rooting for the South Koreans because without us being willing to actually take on the regime, South Korea is toast. North Korea would go after them. In the blink of an eye, if they didn't think the U.S. had South Korea's back. So who are they rooting for? Why are they all of a sudden pretending like this is some revelation that we've got a really serious problem here and we have to take action? Not enough to hold conference after conference. Now, action doesn't mean military right now. I'm not advocating for that. I think that would be rash. I think there are other avenues that can be pursued here. But without enough action... It is going to go military at some point in the future. It is going to go kinetic. All right. Now, I, I want to tell you what they've, they've got an executive order. It's targeting the financial system. We'll get into more of that. Uh, Nikki Haley gave a press conference right uh, a couple of hours uh, before I came on air. We'll go into some of her details. We'll also talk about unmasking and the surveillance of the Trump campaign by the previous administration. It's looking fishier and fishier all the time. And then the uh, third hour, we'll talk a bit about immigration. Maybe I'll make some comments about Jimmy Kimmel. I've got I've got a lot of show here. But uh, 844-900-BUCK, 844-900-2825. Back in just a few. New authority in this area applies to any activity that occurs following my signature on the executive order, which I've actually just signed. Foreign banks will face a clear choice, do business with the United States or facilitate trade with the lawless regime in North Korea, and they won't have so much trade. This new order provides us with powerful new tools, but I want to be clear, the order targets only one country, 
and that country is North Korea. Many countries are working with us to increase economic and diplomatic pressure on North Korea, but I continue to call on all those responsible nations to enforce and implement U.N. sanctions and impose their own measures. There's the President Donald Trump turning up the heat here. Making sure that North Korea is going to have a really tough time uh, doing business with anybody or anybody who wants to do business with North Korea is going to run the risk of being punished by the United States as well. Uh, here's what uh, Ambassador, U.S. Ambassador to the U.N., and keep in mind, the, there's the General Assembly has been meeting all week here in New York City, so a lot of U.N. stuff, a lot of meetings going on. Here's Nikki Haley on what these sanctions will mean for folks who aren't in North Korea. And what this does is take it a step further. This says anyone that deals with North Korea, any financial institution that deals with North Korea is going to be um, punished. And so I think it's important. And it's like Secretary Mnuchin said, if you're going to support North Korea, then you have to be prepared to be sanctioned. There you go. We, we should be we should be clear on this. This is economic warfare. Uh, we, we are trying to do everything now in, in the U.S. Uh, toolkit, economically speaking, to, well, I mean, I'm sure there are a few more things we could do, but I mean, this is a, a high level of economic pressure. This is trying to cut North Korea off from the international banking system uh, really entirely, which some uh, North Korea analysts have been, you know, analysts of North Korea in the United States, I should say, have been advocating for for a long time. So uh, we will see. Uh, we will see what the effect of this is. Now, North Korea, because it is so different from other states, is also harder to economically punish. There will be smuggling. There is no question about that. Let's not pretend that we think that the Chinese government is going to completely seal off the border between China and North Korea. That's that's not going to happen. And I'm sure there'll be uh, Chinese uh, officials who turn a blind eye to stuff that's going on. Maybe they'll even be in on it because there's going to be a lot of money to be made. Uh, North Korea has uh, some raw materials and uh, manufactures textiles. It uses slave labor to manufacture uh, its textiles, but it, it does have some exports that it is able to get uh, hard currency for. Uh, and it has, in its mountainous region up, up in the north, it, it has uh, hydroelectric dams and derives a, a fair amount of, of, well, it used to have a lot more power from them, but it still has... Ways of trying to adapt, and there's even the possibility of uh, liquefaction of its coal to use as a replacement for uh, for gasoline. So we will uh, have to see how much pain this really inflicts on the regime. But I, I have my concerns about what this means for a North Korea that is cornered. Uh, Kim Jong-un has no option to show up in the south of France, get an apartment, and just defect and give up, right? This is all or nothing for him and his top people. That's pretty scary. We don't want loss of life. That's the last thing anyone wants. But at the same time, we're not going to run scared. If, for any reason, North Korea attacks the United States or our allies, the U.S. will respond, period. And that response would have to be overwhelming. Meaning you'd have the annihilation of a, a, a lot of a lot of North Korea. It would be uh, a terrible, horrific uh, 
mess, a catastrophe. But if the regime strikes at one of at us or one of our allies, and we hit back, their response could be even worse. So this is this is the kind of national security problem, the kind of national security conundrum that requires very clear thinking and a stiff spine and a real belief in uh, in the principles that the United States stands for and uh, a willingness to stand for them. Right. It's not just enough to say them. You have to be willing to do something about them. Uh, so we, we will see. And all the all these people in the media, they're saying, oh, Trump, it's look, he's with North Korea. North Korea keeps firing off. North Korea is firing missiles off over our allies. North Korea has threatened to uh, fire a missile at U.S. territory. Um, and yet we hear complaints from supposedly wise members of the journalist establishment who want to tell us all that the problem is Trump, his tone, his tone is wrong. I mean, look at the national security team he has in place. That should, it does give me uh, confidence in the situation. Like, no one's perfect. Everyone everyone is fallible, especially on these issues, a tremendous amount of complexity. But with General Mattis at the Pentagon and McMaster as national security advisor, McMaster, from what I gather, is a little more a little more liberal in some of his uh, tendencies than I would like, but you get Mattis at the Pentagon. You've got very smart people in key positions who understand this threat, are no nonsense, and will do whatever is necessary to defend America and defend our allies and our friends. It feels different, doesn't it, from what you had under the Obama administration? It feels different. Uh, Obama was a big, a big proponent of talk, talk, delay, make it someone else's problem. Make it someone else's problem. I, I might have time to get into today how uh, the government of Afghanistan, somewhat to my surprise, is saying that Trump's new approach is night and day with the previous administration. Now, is that true? I have to dig into it a bit. But I was surprised to see it. I, I didn't see that in terms of the Obama administration versus the Bush administration before it. So there is something that is different here. Also, the speed with which ISIS was routed in Iraq and Syria, noticeably increased once once uh, Trump took office. So are we to are we to think that all of this is a coincidence? I, I think that this is worthy of, of our attention. And, and this is a, an important is an important policy debate. Let me just say this about and I know we've got a we've got a bunch of calls on North Korea. I'm going to get to them in a second. Let me say this about a problem like this that is so many thousands of miles away. As you know, we have over 30,000 U.S. troops in South Korea. We also have a U.S. troop, uh, large U.S. troop presence in Japan. So we have people literally in harm's way. And in, in, in addition to that, we have Americans, civilians, Americans uh, living in South Korea in large numbers. Um, so and we have Americans in Japan and also South Korea and Japan are close allies of ours. And are, are important allies as well, because in the 20th century, they are two countries that prove what capitalism, free markets, freedom, rule of law, what they can do for a people. And Japan and South Korea went from being, well, in the case of South Korea, it was occupied and war-torn. And um, in the case of Japan, it was a, a, a imperialist hyper militant and, and honestly despotic and evil regime in the Second World War. 
and now it's one of our, it's one of our closest allies in the world. I mean, really, it's it's in the conversation right after Canada, Australia, the UK, a few other countries in Europe. You know, Japan is is up there, and the Japanese people are very prosperous. And so th- this is uh, it, it's important. It's important that we continue to be as close with Japan and South Korea as we are. And we don't allow North Korea, which is truly a relic of the Cold War, to threaten that and to threaten a major destabilization. But in terms of why you should care even beyond all that, right, we have seen in the post-9-11 era, in at least one case, what happens when we can't figure out the strategy to get a madman to, uh, to give up his weapons and stop being a threat. And we have seen that that could result in men and women from the United States in uniform deployed to any corner of the globe that there is and losing their lives uh, in the defense of their country, losing their lives for the mission. And so with North Korea, we talk about the military option. That's We want to, we want to avoid that. We want to avoid that because I don't want uh, someone listening to the show right now, and, and I know we've got a lot of people listening who are on military bases. We have people downloading the show off the Internet all over the world uh, serving the military. Uh, and I always I, I honestly it is a great it is a great honor. And I, I say that in, in all sincerity. It is really an honor for me as, as somebody who uh, worked alongside and, and tried to help the warfighter in theater. Whenever I, I hear from people who are serving out there and they say, hey, you know, love the show, you know, Shields High or whatever, that's really cool. Uh, and that is one of the reasons why I stay up so late at night and do all the research that I do and try to bring as much to the show as I do. Uh, but I don't want someone listening to the show on a base or someone who's uh, in high school or college or, you know, in civilian life who's thinking about signing up. I don't want them getting sent to fight uh, on the Korean Peninsula in two years, five years, or ten years, because mistakes were made now. And those are, re- those are really the stakes. We can say, oh, it would just be airstrikes. or it would. It, it's never as easy as we would like to think it would be. The moment things turn, let's be, let's be clear about it, the moment things turn to violence and military force is violence, the, the, the plans deteriorate, and because we are an honorable and ethical people, we will want to limit casualties, we want to rebuild, we... The mess becomes our mess. We do not want that, which means that smart decision-making now is critical, and it means that pushing those in power to make those uh, intelligent decisions about this process and to stand on principle and to uh, do what is necessary now is so critical. The decisions we make now, the decisions that the Trump administration is making about North Korea could determine whether or not someone listening to this show in Kansas, in Washington, in Florida, in Massachusetts, you name it, spends their time deployed in and around the Korean Peninsula in five years or ten years. We just, we don't know, but the decisions have that kind of weight, that kind of impact. All right, uh, TJ. I, TJ, is is he in South Korea? We've got somebody calling in from South Korea. He's on the iHeart app. TJ, how you doing? I'm doing well, Buck. Shields high. Shields high, man. Thank you. I didn't even know we had somebody on the uh, international squad calling in. I appreciate it. <laughs> Absolutely. Long-time listener, big fan. Uh, love your show, Buck. Thank you. Um, yeah, calling South Korea here. Uh, served in the Army here back uh, in another life, 91, 93. Uh, but here as a civilian for the last 20 years now. 
and uh, live in northwest Seoul. We're about uh, 30 kilometers from the DMZ. If I climb the local mountain here, you can see North Korea on the horizon. But the reason I'm calling is we're, we're uh, at an impasse with negotiations. It's obviously a tough negotiation. There's a lot of things that people are unwilling to put on the table. As far as bargaining chips, the U.S. won't accept a nuclear North Korea. North Korea is never going to give up their uh, nuclear weapons through any kind of economic pressure. Uh, I think Putin put it pretty well when he said they'll eat grass and bark before they'll give anything up. And it's, it's such a cult of personality up there that people will do anything they're asked. Um, China is, is the, the only one that I think it has something we can offer them. They're, they're never going to, they need the buffer of North Korea for security reasons. They will never accept a unified peninsula with U.S. forces on the peninsula. And the last part of that, I think, is the, the niche that we can wiggle some negotiating room in. And my question for you is, is an offer to China, quid pro quo, uh, a reunified North Korea, or a reunified Korea under the South Korean government, acceptable to China with the promise of a removal of all U.S. forces from the peninsula? And I know that sounds like we're surrendering something, but I think, you know, we, we got to give something. We can protect South Korea from China or a unified peninsula from any Chinese aggression, which I don't think would happen because of the strengthening economical trade between the two. But the peninsula can remain underneath a, a U.S. Uh, nuclear umbrella of protection, but uh, remove the forces, remove THAAD, re- you know, shut down the bases and, and pull people back to Okinawa um, and other you know, bases in, in the Pacific, but remove the presence from the peninsula itself. I think that's a very interesting question. I mean, that's that's taking a, a real grand strategy approach to everything going on uh, on the Korean Peninsula and in the region. And I, I I would like to think that there would be because look, the best case scenario here. Let, let's take it from this perspective. As I see it, the best case scenario is you have uh, some means of leveraging China to get North Korea to start, uh, uh, you know limiting its missiles and and actually start to denuclearize. That's what this is all about. That's the official policy now of the Trump administration. North Korea has to denuclearize. Um, I, now, when I say best case scenario, I, I don't see this as likely. And, and I, I get the sense from you as well that that's not that's really I, just not on the table I, for I, North Korea, but maybe uh, something will change. Maybe something will give. Uh, so denu- uh, denuclearize North Korea. And then we'd have to go through a series of confidence building measures whereby there was a, a a liberalization of, of North Korean politics, which, I mean, it can't be any more hardline and authoritarian than it is, right? It's literally, I think, impossible. So you'd have to start having that happen. And you'd have to play this out, I think, for many years. And it would have to be phased and step by step. But, I mean, could we get there to, to actually answer your question? I think it's theoretically possible. I think it's very unlikely as a matter of percentages but i do think it's theoretically possible that you could have uh, a, a a chinese acceptance of a denuclearized uh, I, I don't even what would the government be right i mean i don't think they're gonna have they're so far from having elections they don't even have sham elections right this is you know usually when you're talking about authoritarian regimes you got a guy that gets like 99 percent of the of the quote vote in north korea it's like he's he's like the the god king boy right it doesn't really doesn't really apply so uh, i don't Go ahead. I think they have the uh, their equivalent of the Politburo gives him a hundred percent vote of confidence every. Yeah, yeah, no, but I mean the people. The people don't vote. There's no pretense of the people voting. Right. 
it's the Revolutionary Committee, which is like, I mean, come on, right? It's a bunch of dudes in a room. So, um, but no, I, that's a very interesting question because what wh- part of this is what is acceptable for North Korea, and then and then TJ, it's what is acceptable for China, and those are two aspects that you have to to balance to get a sense of what the long term strategy has to be. And I do not. Well, I don't. Go ahead. I don't think North Korea continuing to exist as a country is a is a viable. I, I don't. I don't see any way out of that without it going kinetic some, somewhere down the road. You know, people always ask, you know, how is it living in, in Seoul? You know, aren't you worried about, you know, a war breaking out? And I, I always draw the analogy of it's kind of like somebody living in Los Angeles waiting for the big one. And in, the difference being in Los Angeles, you know it's going to come eventually. You just don't know when. Living in Seoul, there's a chance it might never happen. Where in Los Angeles with the big, with the big earthquake, it, you don't have that luxury. It's going to happen sometime. It might be a thousand years, but it's going to happen. In in with the North Korean situation, there's a chance that it might never happen. Yeah, but, well, yeah. we will see. I, I look. I we've I got, hope we, that's the we've case. Got, we, we've gotten to the point now, though. I think that that's not true anymore. As Master said, we we've, we've run out of road. It's the status quo remains, and North Korea is a viable country with nuclear weapons, and we don't find a negotiating way out of this. I just I see the United States at this point going kinetic at some point. All right. TJ, thank you for your service and thank you for the great call. TJ Conan from South Korea, listening on the iHeart app. That's all isn't that awesome? Yeah, listeners in South Korea, listeners all over the world actually. It's pretty cool. Um all right team, we'll uh we'll get into this some more and I might do a, a little bit of a detour into some uh missile defense history if I can, and then we'll talk about the Facebook ads being turned over to uh, having to do with the Russia stuff, Russia collusion investigation, and then the unmasking and where that story stands, the surveillance of the Trump administration uh, that occurred, or the Trump campaign that that occurred and everyone is now admitting occurred. I would just note that this is a thought that I want to put out there and I'll return to it. If no one is charged with all this Russia investigation stuff, how do they justify all of the surveillance that was going on of Trump and his associates. I think that's as much as the political pressure. There's a tremendous pressure for some kind of prosecution because they used all these tools. And in some cases, tools that are counterintelligence tools that rely on the discretion of the executive uh, branch of you know FBI and, and other agencies. Uh, they were using these tools that if they don't if nothing comes of them, well, what are we to think of that? Right. If there was wiretapping going on and no one actually is charged with anything, well, what does that mean? What are we supposed to make of that? So I think that this is uh, this is something we have to take a look at. All right, I'm going to run to a break here, team. We will be right back. Let me share with you a vision of the future which offers hope. It is that we embark on a program to counter the awesome Soviet missile threat with measures that are defensive. Let us turn to the very strengths in technology that spawned our great industrial base and that have given us the quality of life we enjoy today. What if free people could live secure in the knowledge that their security did not rest upon the threat of instant U.S. retaliation to deter a Soviet attack, that we could intercept and destroy strategic ballistic missiles before they reached our own soil or that of our allies? That was President Ronald Reagan back in March of 1983 in what I should note the press derided as his Star Wars speech. He was speaking about 
what became known as the Strategic Defense Initiative, the ability to shoot down missiles in flight. This was, at the time, uh, the consensus opinion, the consensus foreign policy opinion was outraged because they thought it was better to live in a world where America was going to get destroyed and the Soviet Union would get destroyed. Mutually assured destruction. They thought that was the best possible, the best possible situation. Reagan said, you know what? It would be better if the Soviets couldn't destroy us. How about that? Maybe we should go in that direction. Oh, no, he's a warmonger, they said. He'll, do, he'll, he'll bring us to, to destruction. As you know, within a matter of years, the Soviet Union collapsed. But I should also note that Reagan's idea of being able to shoot down missiles in flight is what was the beginning of a change in theory, of a change in uh, government approach to this that led to what now is. Someone mentioned THAAD before and terminal high altitude air defense, uh, being able to shoot missiles out of the sky. Uh, at least we have the possibility of that backstop if Kim Jong-un does get the ability to put a nuclear missile uh, in flight, an ICBM that could hit us, that could hit the U.S. homeland. But, you know, they, they made fun of Reagan for this at the time, and I should note that it was because of his change in thinking, his willingness to be bold and to be a visionary that put us on the pathway to at least have a prayer today of shooting down a nuke in flight if it comes to that. So we can all thank Reagan still for a good night's sleep. Welcome back, team. Great to have you here with me in the Freedom Hut. We're going to finish up our discussion of North Korea and then get into uh, what's going on with the Mueller investigation and also Facebook turning over its uh, Facebook turning over information about Russian bots, you know, uh, fake accounts, sock puppets, another another cool term for them, uh, where people create social media profiles that are fake and then they try to influence discussions or whatever it may be. Uh, but 844-900-BUCK, 844-900-2825 if you want to call in. Uh, before I get to a call or two here, I just want to note that when I, I played that speech for you from 1983 where Reagan talked about ending this doctrine of, yeah, like, let's just live in a world where the Soviets could destroy us, but we could destroy them too, because that's that's the way to be. That's the best possible scenario. And because of that change and then the fall of the Soviet Union, and then uh, the Clinton administration signed on for its own version of, of uh, missile defense. And now we're actually at a place where we can at least hope to have the uh, capability to shoot down something in flight. Uh, but that was a change in that was a change in policy and perspective from Reagan. So when you have now terminal high altitude area defense, THAAD, it is called, uh, this was a long time coming. And there were people that initially the intelligentsia, the media, I'm sure plenty of think tankers, they didn't want this. They didn't want and Oh, no, this is bad. This is a provocation to be able to shoot missiles out of the sky, to be able to, to neutralize the nukes of a madman or of a totalitarian despot, or whatever the case may be. That's a provocation. And this is how, uh, I think it was ABC, ABC News, talked about it then. In saying the U.S. should build defensive and not offensive weapons, the president is proposing what nuclear planners have rejected for years. The anti-ballistic missile, or ABM, was scrapped by Washington in the 1970s precisely because it might work. Why? Because if either side felt safe from attack, that made nuclear war more acceptable and therefore more probable. 
So Reagan was going against the conventional wisdom. And in that sense, they were like, you know, this guy's he's he's provoking. Reagan's a warmonger. He's provoking. Or he's defeating the Soviet Union, one or the other. And history tells us what the answer to that was. Uh, Guy in Mississippi on WJDX. Hey, Guy. Hello, Buck. Uh, let me uh, mute something I got going here. Uh, <laughs> hey, sure, why not? Uh, We're on a radio uh, show. Take, wait, take your time, Guy. Uh, I got on other things. Uh, this uh, North Korea situation, I read recently, there's a Doomsday 22 satellite orbiting the Earth that uses the sun's power that could be used I did not know it existed. Is it real that could be used to strike targets on the on the planet at at the flick of a switch? Is it? Nah, I've never I've never heard it. I never heard anything like that. It sounds like something from a Superman movie, though. Well, uh, I don't know. I just, All right, I, well, about it. I haven't heard of it, but then again, there's a lot of things that you know, that. a lot of things that I was never read into and don't know about. You know what I mean? I don't know. I've never never heard of this thing before. Right. Okay. All right, uh, my friend. Thank you. <laughs> sorry, I, sorry, I can't give you more on that one. But it sounds cool. Be able to. I'm pretty sure in one of those. Uh, what do you? What do you? What do you call those turn-based strategy games? Uh, where you, you know, Civilization was the original one, which I've talked about on the show before. But there was one I used to play where you would like mine ore, and then you'd build like you know tanks and things, and you'd fight other people, and you could play online anyway. Obviously, I, I should have gotten out a little more for a while there, but I, I played this game a lot. I can't remember what it's called, though. Uh, but they had some satellite where you could, like, uh, just blow up somebody else's, you know, their main factory, and that was always cool. That was always exciting. Uh, but I've never heard of this, of, the, of anything other than that. Yeah. So um, with that, uh, oh, one more, one more thing here. Um, just the, the role of, of Japan and, and South Korea and all this and the diplomacy of the administration. Here's what Nikki Haley said earlier today. Today met with our allies, Japan and South Korea. Obviously a lot to talk about with North Korea. And so we had good conversations with them and the president reassured, obviously, Japan and South Korea. But they also talked about strategies going forward for North Korea. This administration came in and received as much criticism for the lack of foreign policy background of President Trump as, as almost anything else. I mean, they, they hated him more because, you know, fascist, Nazi, racist, xenophobe, all that stuff. But they also really criticized him heavily. There's a lot of smug, a lot of smug panel discussions on TV. But, oh, Donald Trump doesn't know anything about foreign policy. Well, if he manages to make real headway in this North Korea crisis, and it is a crisis, it's a slow-moving crisis, but it's something that will not resolve itself and will only get worse. If he manages to uh, turn this thing into a different phase, and if he were even, if I go as so far, so far as to say, let's say within eight years of a Trump presidency, you know, hey, maybe it'll happen, he gets North Korea to agree to denuclearization. Um, that would be the uh, the biggest diplomatic victory in my uh, certainly in my adult lifetime that I could think of. I mean, I, I don't know what else would come close. That would be huge. And Trump is putting in place right now, I think, the levers, the mechanisms, the pieces necessary to achieve that. It would seem 
to be uh, ironic that on the on the issue of national security specifically, which he received so much criticism for. I know people say, Buck, Obama had no national security background either. Yeah, but he sounded, you know, he, during prepared speeches, he sounded to people that think they know about this stuff like he knew stuff, too. So it was OK. But Trump's going on his instincts here. He sees a bully. He sees a problem. And if he fix if he fixes this, uh, this could be this, you know, at least on national security, I still think immigration on the wall has got to be central to the administration. But on the national security side, this would be a, an enormous win. And look, it would be it's not just about, oh, you know, who's up and down in the polls. This would be great for humanity. If he's able to push for a denuclearization of, the, of North Korea and and open a new chapter where it's going to take time. OK, there's you know, North Korea, the whole regime's guilty of war crime. So this is not like we're going to all shake hands and be friends anytime soon. But if he is able to turn this thing around, um, or at least get it pointing in a different direction, it will show that the decades of conventional wisdom of the uh, smart, foggy bottom diplomat set uh, wasn't able to accomplish what leadership, clear thinking, and uh, a principled stand was. So that's that is a possible outcome here. There's also... There's also the chance that this thing goes off the rails and gets really ugly and bad really fast. I don't know which is going to happen, but I do know that they are making it as clear as they can right now that status quo is unacceptable. So we'll have to see where it goes. That's what I've got for you on North Korea today. Uh, we'll talk a bit about Facebook and Russia. And I also, this was kind of a late addition. I was talking to uh, to Tyrone about this in the break. Um, I might want to discuss with you a little bit of uh, look, this is uh, I don't follow sports that closely, but I know about the Aaron Hernandez case and they've done a uh, an autopsy and he had very serious uh, brain deterioration. Uh, now, I know he was a convicted murderer and he committed suicide in prison. And so when you think of Aaron Hernandez, you think of a, a brutal murderer who was killing people. But he well, I think I think this is worth a discussion here because. This traumatic brain injury, or it's pardon me, it's not it's not TBI, um, which I wasn't trying to say that it was, but this this trauma to the brain, um, which is called CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy. He is not the only one who has it, and he is not the only one that is going to be carrying or was carrying the uh, symptoms around with him on a day to day basis. So the implications for football for the NFL are. Uh, very serious, I think. And uh, and more to the point of our discussion, perhaps, um, what this means for some contact sports. For those of you who are playing yourself or who have kids who want to play. Um, all right. So I, I may get there. If I don't get there today, I'll probably get there tomorrow on our, on our Friday show. Um, but it's my way of saying we've got. And then I want to talk to you about immigration. Uh, get a little bit into the latest of the Jimmy Kimmel saga. Uh, he's being mean. No surprise there. And then some Team Buck Speaks. I've got a lot of messages coming in that I wanted to share with you from the folks listening. So we've got that and more coming up. Stay with me. Okay, so Buck Sexton here, team. Welcome back. Uh, fake Russian Facebook accounts bought $100,000 in political ads. That was the story from like a week ago. New York Times. Everyone's like, whoa, oh no, Russia. They are destroying our election integrity. They are making it so hard, so difficult for us to know the truth from the fake. Uh, but R- Russia, Russia, Russia. Here we go. 
And now they have Facebook turning over Russian-linked ads to Congress. But I thought it was just what I used to find a girlfriend. Why is this for politics? Um, so they... Let me just give you a little bit of the background from this time story, and then I'll tell you what I think is going on here. Uh, under growing public pressure to reveal more about the spread of covert Russian propaganda on its site, Facebook said on Thursday that it was turning over more than 3,000 Russia-linked ads to congressional committees investigating the Kremlin's influence operation during the 2016 presidential election. I care deeply about the democratic process and protecting its integrity. Um... Mark Zuckerberg said during an appearance on Facebook Live, uh, he added he did not want anyone to use our tools to undermine democracy. Uh, what what do people really think is the solution here? I just want to start with that before I get into how this is just the the, uh, the obsession here continues. Uh, I, I spent countless hours during the election uh reading, looking at social media, trying to see everything I could, left and right, center, crazy, Green Party, Bernie, you know, Bernistas, everything, right? I, I never once saw, like, this uh, a Russian political ad that I was like, oh, look at that. Didn't see one. And if I had, I would have been like, all right, well, you know, there's that. Who cares? Who cares? But even before I get into the, there's there's the lack of impact aspect of the discussion, which is that they want to talk about a campaign here to, quote, undermine democracy. They're undermining democracy. They want to talk about that. Um, and, and I want to discuss how that's just nonsensical. But then there's also the other aspect of this that I want to actually go to first, which is, so what are we going to do? Are we going to create an Internet where you you can't access sites from other countries? Are we, we going to do what the Chinese have done, which is have a, a, a what the, the great the, the great firewall of China, where they don't allow certain information in and out on the net? What is supposed to be the solution here to Russia wanting to put fake crap up on Facebook? I mean, and before I just before we get to like who cares about fake Russia stuff on Facebook, and I'll I'll get into some of those numbers in a second too. What do we think this people keep saying? We need to do this so that it never happens again. We need to protect our democracy. How are we going to protect our democracy from people saying stuff that's not true on the Internet? I mean, the Russians during the Soviet era were running all kinds of newspapers and they had sympathetic journalists in this country that were doing all kinds of stuff to help them. If you have another book I'm throwing out there for you, if you have not read Whitaker Chambers witness talking about his time as a communist and his time uh, spent trying to help the Soviet Union and the Communist Party while, you know, an American in this country and a, and a writer. Um, witness is one of the most important English language books of the 20th century. It's up there with 1984 and, and a few others that come to mind. Uh, I highly recommend it to you. But what are we going to do? Let's assume that this is this insidious evil a uh, campaign of Russian democracy undermining. We don't we don't really like your uh, democracy, so we're going to undermine it. You know, we're going to like sell it for a very cheap price. Uh, what are we to do? How do we separate this out? There's no answer to this, which 
they don't want to talk about because they want to keep having hearings. And excuse me, um, Mr. Chairman, uh, can, can we talk more about the Russia influence online campaign? I mean, you had 120 million plus votes cast in this country. Uh, uh, so, some Facebook ads here and there. But I'm already going to the impact part of it. See, I keep drifting back towards impact, but I also want to, what's the solution? Start. I think it's more fun in some ways to start there. So what, what are we going to do? We're going to hold all these hearings and, and say what? Oh, we're going we're gonna to have Facebook and probably Twitter and all these other deeply progressive Internet behemoths, I should add, right? We're going to have the Googles, the Facebooks, and the Twitters of the world pushed by the government. So it's not even their fault. It's like not even their fault, bro. Like the government's going to make us do this. They're going to make them uh, start to take action to police content online, to police the political speech online, right? To what get, and there are, by the way, this has already been going on, and I, I'm shocked at the naivete of some folks out there in the conservative media as well who are like, oh, yeah, you know, there's no problem. Facebook, they would never, they would never stack the deck against conservatives. Really? It would be a shock to me if they weren't doing that. I assume and have always assumed that they're doing that. The rest of the media does it. What What do you think? Mark Zuckerberg is like really likes conservatism. And there's no transparency here at all, at least with, you know, at least with Dan Rather. You saw him on the screen. You knew who he was. And, you know, you could attach the words to him with Facebook. It's whatever just pops up in your feed, man. It's just what happens. The algorithm. So we now are in a in a place where the government is pushing the government is pushing these massive Internet companies to take actions that will inherently allow them to veto speech they don't like, to elevate speech they do like. They're saying, be the speech police on these social media networks. Use your vast power to determine what's acceptable and what's not. You don't think this is, oh, there's going to be hate speech regulations. There's going to be you know, terms of service violations and all this stuff. And it's really... Difficult to even know how much of it's going on. So start with that. There's no solution to this problem of, oh, like Russia's buying stuff. Oh, no. Russia is saying mean things about Hillary. This is what this comes down to. People were making fake accounts to say mean things about Hillary online. I want to send the Senate committee or whatever, you know, some comments about what people used to say about me when I go on CNN. Like mean comments about people happen all the time. Lies, mean comments. That's just reality. But then you get into, and this is the other part of the discussion, the impact, right? So I talked about the so what or the, the, the what do we do about it. Now let's get into the impact. Uh, Facebook, they're talking about $50,000, $100,000 of an ad buy. Uh, if $100,000, I mean, both sides spent billions in this last election cycle. If $100,000 could determine the winner of the presidential election, that is a level of genius that we just should automatically respect, right? If, if spending a hundred grand on Facebook ads could cost one side or other the election, what do we need all these consultants and these massive media complexes for? They're, they're talking about $50,000 of ads on Facebook. Facebook is making, to give you a sense of scale here, literally billions of dollars a quarter on, on advertising revenue. It is making in the billions. $50,000 barely even registers as a blip on the screen. But we're, we're going to have all this time devoted to looking into whether, into what? That there were some sock puppets that were talking about Hillary and Pizzagate or something? I mean, what are we, 
What do they really think they're going to find? And the answer is this. The answer is forcing the uh, forcing those of us who don't buy into the Russian narrative to have to play defense and allowing those who are obsessed with this, who are obsessed with rewriting history and, in fact, in their minds, writing history by pretending that the Trump victory never happened, that Hillary was cheated, that she really that she's really the president. That's what when you really boil all this down, Hillary's the president. Trump is an imposter. Trump is an imposter president. That's why we have to have these discussions about Facebook ads and 50 grand, right? Billions and millions of dollars spent on Facebook. But the Russians were able to spend 50 grand on some bots that, what does this even mean? I mean, it's, it is nonsensical. This is just a, a bizarre obsession. It is just an emotional impulse that the left refuses to let go of. And Congress is in on it, too. The media is in on it. It's not going to stop anytime soon. Uh, let's talk a little unmasking. And then I do want to talk about this uh, this brain injury issue in football. We've got uh, Ned Ryan on the line. He is founder and CEO of American Majority Action. He's a former presidential writer for George W. Bush. Ned, great to have you back. Good to be back with you, Buck. Let's talk unmasking and the politics at work here, my friend. I saw you uh, put out on Twitter... Quote, I said from almost day one that the Obama unmasking scandal could make Watergate Nixon and the plumbers look like amateur small ball. End quote. Quite a statement, sir. Tell me about what you think's going on here. Yeah, no, I said that pretty much the, the, the day it broke. I was on, I think I was on with Trish Regan on, on Fox Business and said, based off everything I've seen with the Obama administration, their abuse of power, uh, this looks to me as though they have weaponized government against opposing political uh, party and opponents. And, you know, when you see Samantha Power unmasked, uh, had over 260 unmasking incidents in 2016 alone, it really does strike me that they were using the power of the state, the power of government against opposing political uh, party. And so, you know, when, when you realize what they have done in weaponizing government against those that oppose them, I think it makes Watergate look like almost a nothing burger. Um, so, that, to me, is I think you're going to see more and more of this come out in which you understand the Obama administration uh, abused power uh, and was, was using it in a way that was never intended to be used. Yeah, I mean, Samantha Power was U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. Why uh, on earth? Yeah, well, what is she doing? I, this, is, this is the great mystery to me, and that's when, you know, again, I, you, you saw I did a couple tweets today on this. Why on earth would our U.N. ambassador need to be involved in unmasking what possible reason could she have in requesting over 260 times for American citizens to be unmasked. Um, it, it makes no sense to me, and then it starts again, tie back into what I thought day one. These people were abusing power, had nothing to do with intelligence gathering, had everything to do with abuse of power and weaponizing government against their opponents. And I, I think it's it's quite a stretch to to suggest that it's a coincidence that two of the people at the center of this surveillance and un- unmasking scandal are Samantha Power and Susan Rice, who are the uh, among the, the most politicized of, a, of national security officials of a very politicized administration what? when it comes to national security. And, and, and don't leave out Ben Rhodes. Don't leave out Ben Rhodes, because I think when we start to uncover more of what actually took place, Buck, I think you're going to see the name of Ben Rhodes, who was Susan Rice's deputy, um, and, and his involvement in this as well. So 
I, you know, and again, John Brennan, John Brennan was subpoenaed um, in, in this uh, unmasking scandal as well. So I think the more we continue to pull the thread, and this is one of the things that I said back last spring, I hope that Republicans in the House and the Senate will not stop. They will continue to pull the string on this and see where it leads. And I think it's going to lead to very interesting places. We're speaking to Ned Ryan. He's founder and CEO of American Majority Action. Um, Ned, I want to switch gears for a second to the the state of the health care bill and the health care debate. <laughs> well, yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. Get ready. Uh, what, do you, what do you think about this? I mean, you got Graham Cassidy. They're saying That's it's right. going to the states. Uh, yeah, of course, the I, New York Times and others are saying this is the most extreme. Every time Republicans try to do anything, no matter how small a tinkering around the edges of the bill it may be uh, around Obamacare, it's it's the most extreme, right. you know, throw right. granny out in the cold with no health care, health health care bill imaginable. imaginable. People um, are going to die. Yeah, everyone's going to die because of this. But you know, what do you see as as the uh, as the first of all, the likelihood of this thing actually getting done? And two, you know, what do you think of it? So I might have a few thoughts on this book. Uh, wrote a piece on this yesterday in which I equated the Graham Cassidy bill to a hot, uh, a bowl of lukewarm gruel. But I said when confronted with a bowl of Lent versus a bowl of lukewarm gruel, take the lukewarm gruel. And that's what Graham, Cra- Graham Cassidy is. It's not full repeal. You know, and I made this point in that op-ed book. We were promised full repeal, which is a stake. And instead we've been slid across this bowl of gruel, but take it. And the reason I'm saying take it is because I am deeply concerned, as you see Bernie Sanders and the rest of these people really starting to push single payer, when you see that almost 70 percent of Democrats now believe that single payer is an acceptable approach to health care, we have to start dismantling that Frankenstein known as Obamacare. And I I, I explain in this op-ed, you know, at least Graham Cassidy repeals the individual and employer mandate. At least it does put block grants back to the states and actually makes federalism real instead of a fiction. Uh, it repeals the medical device tax and over-the-counter uh, tax as well. So there's some positives. At the same time, it leaves a lot of the Obamacare taxes in. And, and you and I both know, and a lot of people that have been involved in politics know, taxes never die. And if you don't kill them now, we're probably still going to be talking about some of these Obamacare taxes years from now. And so that's one of my greatest frustrations at the same time, understanding the reality of what we're confronting, if we don't start dismantling Obamacare now in some way, form, or fashion, this might be one of our last legitimate shots to do it. So I'm encouraging people, as much as I hate it, as much as we were promised steak and we're being given gruel, take the gruel. And if we're going to talk about steak versus steak versus gruel, um, I, I have to also ask you about Trump and DACA. Here's my thing, and I also wrote about this. If if we are going to put DACA, where'd you write table, about it? You're telling us about your op-eds. People might want to go check it out. People go. Ch- you can check out the op-ed on DACA and on uh, Graham Cassidy at thehill.com. Uh, I've written those op-eds there. My take on this uh, buck was: if we are going to put DACA on the table, Trump has to, in return, say, "I will get funding for the wall first. You will give me a legitimate tax reform, and I will get some form of health care reform, and then we can talk DACA. But he cannot give away DACA without some, with not just one thing, not two things, but he has to get, I think, three things in return for it. And at that point, I would say take that deal. As much as I think that people have come in illegally, as much as I think that they are not here, uh, they did not come in the right fashion, if we can get three of those very legitimate things, again, building the wall being a very uh, real way in which we reform uh, immigration – Okay, take the deal. So my concern when he first came out on that DACA, uh, the, 
the DACA situation was do not give it away unless you get something in return. And the proper order in all of that buck is funding for the wall, tax reform, health care reform, and then DACA. Ned, when are you running? <laughs> so, uh, Buck, is, you know, I had a dad in Congress for 10 years. I have seen the sausage factory up close uh, with four little kids. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll think about <laughs> you're, that. You're running. You're just running after your four kids to make sure they stay out of trouble. I get it. You, you know what? To be fair, let's, let's say when my kids are growing up, I'll think about it seriously. All right. Ned Ryan, everybody, founder and CEO of American Majority Action. He's also presidential writer for George W. Bush. Check out his latest pieces on thehill.com. Ned, great to have you, my friend. Thanks, Buck. I appreciate it. Uh, team, I want to talk to you about this uh, piece on brain injuries in the NFL, and then we'll talk immigration in the next hour and some other things uh, that will come into uh, come into the mix. So I saw this uh, video earlier today, and it's tough. Uh, you know, you have this uh, baseball player for the Yankees, and he's... Uh, I, I'm not a I'm not a particular baseball fan. I know a lot of people love it. Some of my closest friends are, are really into it. I'm, I'm not somebody who's gets excited about baseball. But anyway, I always remember when I did try to play, people would say, "Don't be don't be afraid of the ball," you know, which I guess is good advice. But the ball actually could be a problem. Um, and I remember having a uh, a English teacher who played in a men's softball league in New York City here, and he was a pitcher, and the bats in softball are metal, and the pitching mound in softball is pretty close to the plate. He took a line drive into the face that he had to have reconstructive surgery on his face. I mean, it, it looked like he I mean, it looked like he had been hit in the face with a bat, uh, but it had been the ball. And I always remember seeing that thing, you know, and I, I knew that teacher pretty well, uh, the ball is a problem sometimes, actually. It's not like this is something, just a fear you have to get over it. I, you know, this is a high-velocity object, and it's heavy, and, it, and it's hard. Uh, and today, uh, a, a young girl, I think she's two or three years old, got hit with a line drive by a player. And I feel terrible for her family, the young girl. She went to the hospital. She's okay. She's recovering. But she got hit with a line drive off a Major League Baseball bat. And you see the player, too. And... um. I, I, I've never, because I didn't play baseball, I never had anything like that happen with me, but I kind of had a moment of feeling, it reminded me of uh, soccer practice once, and it wasn't me who kicked the ball, but I was with a friend, and, and he let one he let one rip, and he had quite a foot, and it went just over, it went over the, uh, the goal, and it hit a, a, a gentleman who was you know, kind of race walking, and I would guess was in his mid to late 70s. And that guy went down, and I remember thinking, "Oh my gosh, I don't know if he's getting back up." Now I didn't hit the ball; I didn't kick the ball legitimately. I'm not telling you the story, but I, I and the feeling in my stomach seeing that happen—it was just me and this friend of mine there practicing, and I just thinking, and you know, he had he, there was no ill intent. It you know, he just he really connected, and it went. So I felt for that player. To, I mean, he was crying, I think. I mean, the baseball player looked like he was tearing up. I mean, he just felt horrible as soon as he could see that it was like a two-year-old girl got hit with a line drive. Again, a complete accident, but those things happen. So anyway, I just I, – that was that was a rough one to see today. But I'm, I, now I've got sports on the mind here, and it's because uh, there's another story um, that uh, I think is – this is going to be a big issue, a big problem. So Aaron Hernandez is, uh, he killed himself in prison. 
he was convicted of murder back in 2015, and earlier this year he he committed suicide. He was a superstar linebacker for the New England Patriots, which is the most, um, you know, the, the most prestigious uh, dynasty football uh, football dynasty for the last you know decade plus or so, right? And he was involved with these these crimes, these murders, really brutal murders. But they've done a uh, they've done an autopsy, and they have found uh, the diagnosis now is that he had chronic traumatic encephalopathy, um, and had stage three of four stages of it. So his brain was already atrophying, and at the most severe stage, you get dementia, aggression, difficulty finding words. This is a a very serious brain disease. And there have been other players that have been found with this as well. And I was speaking to Ty about this, who follows this story more closely than I do. And he told me some very interesting stuff about the NFL and whether the NFL is really trying to find out the truth here or not and where the research is. Tell me, Ty, uh, Ty, tell me what's going on with BU and the research in the NFL. Well, they initially pledged $100 million, which is obviously a lot of money, to research. But over the summer, when there was some money due, all of a sudden, BU didn't get the money from the NFL because at the end of the day, it seems like more and more they're afraid of what these brain, what they'll find. Because I think what the NFL expected was the first few brains that came out, you know, the movie Concussion and things like that, everybody's seen that, would have it. And then there would start to be some counter evidence. There's no counter evidence. I mean, there's just 109 out of 110 10 brains so far studied. And I know everybody says that's a small sample size, but... It, it's, it's getting bigger, and every single time these guys have CTE, and all of them either went broke. All of a sudden, you hear about spouses who say, he was a great businessman. He started three businesses. All of a sudden, I look, and we're getting foreclosed on because he forgot to send the checks. Like, they, they just simple things like that, the confusion, and that's, that's if they're lucky. A lot of times, the guys end up violent and commit murder or hurt themselves. Yeah, I mean, Aaron Hernandez, this guy uh, signs a $40 million contract coming out of college, and he's going around acting like a, a contract hitman or something. He's killing people for for the most minor infraction. Forget it being a hitman. He wasn't even getting paid. He's just killing people for looking at him the wrong way. I mean, the guy was uh, clearly deranged. And so I think it's interesting to look and see that he had this level of, of CT. But what's the so the theory is that it's multiple that CT in the NFL. It's not about the big hits, right? This is about continuous, right. continuous pressure that the brain has against the skull from just the the day-to-day football hit. Just the day-to-day football things. People compare it to boxing and UFC, MMA. MMA actually is the best uh, insulated from it because if you take a kick to the head, you go down, they stop the fight, and then you have a mandatory suspension in which you're not allowed to do contact. Boxing gets it more because it's, it's the worst time it happens with boxing is a guy who has enough power to hurt you but not enough power to knock you out, and you take 12 rounds of a beating. And that's what happens to football players all the time. So going forward, UFC actually is insulated from this more than other sports because it's these smaller hits that happen over and over and over again. That doesn't really happen in mixed martial arts. I know you you played. I never played football. I watch it. uh, And it's the only sport that I enjoy watching that I've never played. Every other sport that I like to watch, I've at least participated in and some I, I played a lot of. Uh, you played football growing up, and I thought it was really interesting. You told me, would you let would you let your kids play football? Absolutely not. I mean, it's not even a it's not even a question. There's just no way. And the reason is, and this is what the NFL is going to run into. There's no way to properly protect yourself from this situation 
unless you change the way football is. Yeah, even the I mean the helmets, the helmets getting better, the padding getting better. If it's about the brain contacting the inside of the skull, essentially from just the movement, the torque on the neck, and the body going down, hitting the ground, that is football. Right. So unless it becomes flag football or seven on seven, unless the game dramatically changes, there's no way to protect yourself, unfortunately. And that's why, for me, it would be a, a non-starter for my children. I don't judge other parents, but for me, it would be a non-starter. Thanks, Ty. So, you know, Ty, from some perspective, somebody's following this much more closely than I am and also has, has played football. Look, I, 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 you know, I'm torn on this because I, I love the NFL. I know Ty does. Amy watches the NFL sometimes, too. Right, Amy? NFL, maybe? Sometimes? A little bit? No? No NFL? Yes? Okay. Uh, a little bit. Okay. <laughs> she says a little bit. A little bit of NFL. No, I, I love the NFL. I watch with my brothers and my dad. Um, I, I'm. I think football is from a spectator from a spectator point of view. I, I think it's hard for anything else really to compete with a good football game. And and I know people love it so much. It's become. I know baseball is America's pastime, but I feel like the primary sport right now. You know, in season football dominates everything else. I don't know what you do with this. I should note that there are other sports that have problems with this, too. People always say, oh, well, you know, those Americans with their football, like we play soccer, you know, or European football. Uh, I was telling Ty in the break, they've done studies. Young girls, and and this, I know, this is a microaggression because I'm separating out girls from guys, but the musculature, the, uh, the density and weight of the skull is different, particularly among young men and young women. You know, so you sort of young teenage girls that are playing soccer versus young teenage guys. Should not be using uh, using their head on, uh, for headers on the ball. Should not be doing it. They've they've started it, and they've I think Real Sports and HBO has looked into this a bit. There's some, been some research, but you know I played a, I played a lot of soccer, a lot of basketball, a lot of tennis growing up, and uh, yeah, that's right. I played a lot of tennis growing up. You can make fun of me. Tennis is a great sport. Whatever. Tennis is amazing, but I did not play football. It wasn't really big here in Manhattan, but I know that. Um, you know, headers were a big part of of, of soccer and, and all over the world. And when you think about it, you're you are you are taking a, a a rubber object that has weight that's moving at speed and smashing your head into it, as well as by the way, oftentimes smashing your head into other heads, and doing this over and over and over again. Your body is not meant to do this. And I know that people think, oh, don't be a wimp and everything else, but you know, look. Hernandez might have been a you know a, a psycho killer, whether he had CTE or not. I don't know, but it, it is very suspicious. But it certainly would explain a lot. And the NFL not wanting to admit that this is a much bigger problem than it is, that, I, I could see how that would be the case, too. And then when you add in other sports where this is an issue, you know, people with life expectancy is going up all the time. We're living, people living into their you know, 90s, are going to be living into three digits more regularly. You gotta take care of your brain. You know, it's just not worth it in some of these sports. I think it's a little bit of a rethink. We gotta apply to this. If you have a thoughts on this, we'll. Uh, if not today, we'll definitely take it tomorrow too. The Dream Act has been a priority. We think it is a good first step. It is a priority. Uh, some people are saying, "Well, if you pass that, then what about other undocumented?" Well, comprehensive immigration reform is okay. We think this is a good first step, and we do want to protect the families. Protecting their families is, of course, the logical next step. Their families did a great thing for our country, bringing these kids here who are working, who are in the military, who are in school, who are a a brilliant part of our future. There you have Nancy Pelosi articulating what I think is is the the real sentiment 
in the Democrat Party right now about about dreamers, which is that they're doing us a favor by being here. That U.S. citizens should be thankful to illegals in this case because they're they're helping us out because they're just so amazing. They're so much better than U.S. citizens, U.S. citizens uh, who are white, African-American, Latino, Asian-American, you know, go, go down the whole list. Illegals are doing us a favor by being here. This, this is what the Democrats are running with now as their uh, explanation for their position on DACA. And it's not new, really. We're just hearing it, I think, more clearly than we have in the past. But they really they really are. I, I was going to say they believe this. I don't know what they believe. I think the Democrat Party is so full of uh, of so full of phonies that it's almost impossible to differentiate who's a true believer versus who's. Uh, who's a complete cynic, right? Who's a true believer and an idiot versus who is just saying whatever they have to say in the moment uh, in order to get the the masses who are registered Democrat to pull the lever for them. But the uh, the, the storyline here is going to just continue to play out with Democrats pushing for uh, for DACA. And if Trump goes along with it, I think I, I that would be the single the single biggest mistake Short of something terrible and unforeseeable happening with North Korea, the single biggest policy mistake that I could foresee right now would be just an an amnesty. It would be a massive amnesty, and it would just turn it would turn his base on him. I think. I think anyone who is going to be honest about what Trump was promising and and pushing for, and, and why why did he beat Marco Rubio? Why did he beat Ted Cruz? It was the immigration issue that really separated him. Yeah, there was a there was an issue of charisma and audience connection and appeal. And Trump was a much better showman than any of the rest of them. I know that he he managed to really sidetrack and sideline uh, Marco Rubio as though Rubio wasn't a a gifted uh, politician. I think Rubio in his elements actually pretty smooth, pretty good. Uh, and I think that Ted Cruz is an intellectual, an intellectual powerhouse. He's not Mr. Charisma, and he admits that. But why did we vote for Trump instead of these other candidates? And some of you are sitting there and they're like, yeah, and, and John Kasich, too. And I'm like, nah, nah. I remember I interviewed Kasich, and it was, and I try to be, I was putting on my, my journalist hat for a second in the interviews because I was just asking questions. I wasn't trying to overly opinion it. I went through, I interviewed Kasich and Rubio and... Uh, I've interviewed Cruz before. I mean, you know, the, the whole uh, who else? Rand Paul. I, Rand Paul was just I was just I'm waiting for him to be like, dude, like whatever. Hang 10. He just strikes me as like a surfer from Kentucky. But he, uh, I remember speaking to uh, Kasich and just afterwards thinking, well, that guy's not going to that guy's not going anywhere with this presidential campaign thing. But why did we vote for Trump or why did many of you listening vote for Trump? Because of his stance on immigration, I think above and beyond any other policy matter. Putting aside the style on the substance, it was immigration. And there's a lot of baggage that comes with Trump. We all know that there's a lot of stuff that you have to be willing to say, Okay, not great, not perfect. But overall, I'm still with this. Overall, I'm still supporting the movement. Yeah, the nepotism in the White House is troubling. Right. I don't want to go down the whole list, but there's a lot of stuff that's been going on that is difficult, uh, difficult to overlook unless you can see a broader a a much more important end result coming and on immigration that means finally stopping this policy of 
near open borders and continuous cyclical amnesty. This was uh, this is essential. This is what we've been promised. This is what we've been talking about. And I just worry that because Trump has so much now uh, arrayed against him with the Mueller investigation, the media, the media is there's no way for them to turn turn it back or, or tone it down against Trump. They have defined their position. They want to destroy this White House and they want people in prison. There's there's they don't want different policies. They don't want moderation. I think there are plenty of people at The Washington Post, The New York Times, who quite honestly are uh, are agitated by Trump doing a deal with Pelosi and Schumer on the debt ceiling because, wait a second, Obama never got deals done with the Republicans. If Trump is this fascist, extremist, neo-Nazi loving lunatic, which is what the media is always saying he is, why is he reaching out to the other side and taking what the moderate consensus position is, at least, on the debt ceiling. I, I thought he was just completely a, a barbarian, right? So it, it complicates the narrative for them because they've told us that Trump is the absolute worst, that he's the devil, that he, he just, you, you know all this, right? You, you, we don't have to go down the list of their entire TV networks that are essentially anti-Trump PACs, political action committees. Immigration, though, is a place where he can't allow the pressure to change his position. And I'm I am concerned. And you see what Democrats are willing to do on the other side. You have uh, Javier Becerra, who is the attorney general of California, is suing the administration right now to stop a border wall from going up. Now, this is really repairs mostly to an existing border wall that's in the San Diego sector of the U.S.-Mexico border. And he's trying to stop it. How is he doing that? This is just litigious. It's just using the law as a weapon. It's lawfare. It's trying to tangle up. They're not going to win on the merits. The federal government is allowed to build a wall to separate our country from another country, especially in a place where it already has a wall. But suing is just a means of slowing it down. It's a it's a way to show the Democrat base, that in California, they will do anything. They will abuse the law and public servants like Javier Becerra will abuse the powers of their office. He's the attorney general of California, and he should know better. He's suing because he wants an environmental impact statement. It's a wall. Yeah, some tortoises and and desert hares and things like that may have trouble getting back and forth. Sorry, it's a wall. It's got to go up. I'll never forget when I was uh, out at a military base in California, uh, just spending spending some time out there doing a little little training, little stuff. And the uh, the general ran the base, sat us down, and was just giving us a base overview. And he went into this story about how they uh, they were forced by the environmental lobby in, in California. They were forced to build. These uh, forced to build these this netting along a long stretch of roadway going into the base because there was traffic going into and out of the base and tortoises were getting run over. So they had to build this little netting along the side, almost like a little tennis net for tortoises. But, you know, tortoises aren't the most agile of fellows. And so they would get stuck in this in this netting. And then they were just it was like ringing the, the dinner bell for vultures and you know, whatever else runs around the desert eating tortoises, I don't know. Uh, but so they had this problem. The environmentalists kept suing and problems and suing. And it was all out in court. 
And so then they had to build tortoise tunnels. They actually had to build these little tunnels under the roadway so they so that the tortoises would go into the netting and then could kind of find their way because they don't really have a reverse button, apparently. Like, tortoises can't hit the reverse. They would get stuck in the netting, and then they'd have to, you know, <laughs> you can imagine, this is like all in slow motion. I have a tortoise moving slowly, moving slowly. And they'd eventually get to the tortoise tunnel, and they could get to the other side, and then they could go forward and get through. This cost the taxpayer like millions of dollars. I, I forget what the total figure was, but it was really hard to believe at the time that they would put the military through this. You know, I mean, this is, is essentially a roadkill problem, right? I mean, roadkill happens. I love animals. I feel bad when it happens. I, you know, I've I've come very close a few times to uh, nailing a deer here or there on the road, and you know, I've had some short stops. I've been lucky so far. Knock on wood, right? But you know. Come on, the military's got more important stuff to do than build tortoise tunnels. But this is, it's California. The environmental lobby is incredibly powerful there. And Javier Becerra, the attorney general of the state of California, knows that if he, um, if he sues, environmental groups are going to come to his defense. They're just going to try to tie this up in the federal courts for as long as possible. Because even in places where they have a wall, they don't want a wall that works. Well, what can you say about this other than it, they're making it obvious they're making it obvious to the rest of us that they want people to be able to come into the country illegally. What is the opposition to the wall all about, if not just that the Democrats, at the end of the day, want more illegals to come in? Why are they so opposed to wall? They say it won't work. Well, then what's the big deal? They're clearly opposed to it because they know that at some level it will work. And it is... A, a symbol as well of an administration that, yes, I'm going to use the S word now, is trying to restore sovereignty. National borders are an essential, essential part of that. I, I just it never would occur to me that I could show up whenever I've been in a foreign country and I've been in a bunch of them. Whenever I've been in the for, in a foreign country, I have always thought of myself as a guest. I'm a guest. I'm subject to their laws. And I appreciate them letting me hang out for whatever period of time that I'm there. I've been in some countries where things were a little rough at the time and things were a bit spicy and it's not a, not a good time to be there, obviously. And I've been in lots of lovely places, too. But I'm a guest. I would It would never occur to me to show up in another country and just be like, well, give me stuff now. I'm here. Give me stuff. You owe me stuff. You should You should feel lucky that I'm here in your country and demanding stuff. Which is exactly what Nancy Pelosi is saying the American people should say about illegals. Why are, why are DACA dreamers any better than any other illegal? I mean, I want to ask that question right now. Why are they any better? Because they were brought here as children? There are plenty of illegals who are really nice people who are working hard and are, are contributing to the economy. I mean, they're in the country illegally. They broke the law. But just there are plenty of people that came, I'm sure, in their 20s who were every bit as productive and and law-abiding and kind as any and as any dreamer. So why the pretense that the dreamers are so? Oh, the dreamers are. I mean, there are dreamers that you know you, you can do some some Google searches on it. You'll see there are dreamers who are you know, gang members, dreamers who are guilty of sexual assault. There are some that are. You know, I mean, just. But oh no, it's it's this it's this class of of angels that are here, and the big mean Republicans won't just give them. Uh, give them their their amnesty. And, and I should note that the amnesty is not something that we should expect there to be um, anything in the way of uh, gratitude for. No, 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 no. The, the amnesty is 
is now expected. And that's why that Pelosi meeting was, I think, that's why that Pelosi meeting where, where we played it for you earlier in the week, they got all you know up in, up in Pelosi's, up in her grill, so to speak, uh, about the Dreamers. And they were demanding. Not only, they were telling her, I mean, they were telling among the most powerful Democrats, which, but she is. They were telling somebody who had been third in line for the presidency not long ago, it's that getting them what they want is not enough. They want the moral or emotional victory. I don't even know what we would necessarily call it of also not not having to give anything in return. They they take a maxim a maximum position here. Uh, they, they try to to maximize their side. There will be no negotiation. That was a stunning. That was a stunning moment. It should be for all of us who who know about it. So anyone listening to this show, and if you didn't, I always recommend please do download the uh, earlier podcast from the week. You can always listen to it on uh, on iTunes or however you listen to podcasts. Buck Sexton with America now. But that was a real moment. That was something that we should all be uh, paying close attention to here. And and that's that mentality. On the one hand, you've got Nancy Pelosi, who is presenting dreamers as this. uh, Every dreamer is a a valedictorian serving in the Marine Corps, uh, you know, volunteering at a soup kitchen. Some of them are. That's great. But. Plenty of them aren't, and it's not about that. We don't make policy based on the fact that there are some people who are nice who are affected by policies. If it was about who's nice or who's a decent person, we might as well let in hundreds of millions of people from impoverished nations all over the world who are totally nice, would be very law-abiding. A lot of them would likely go on welfare and take in more than they put out in the economy, and we're already $20 trillion in debt, but they are nice. But we're not going to do that. Because you don't make laws, you don't make policy based on a few case studies or a few stories of people who are impressive um, as individuals. You make policy based on what is lawful and what works in the aggregate and what is best for the citizens of this country. So this immigration thing, we got to watch this very, very closely. All right, team, we're going to hit a quick break here. I'll be back with you in just a few. Stay with me. This is a guy, Brian Kilmeade, who whenever I see him, kisses my like a little boy meeting Batman. Oh, he's such a fan. He's dying to be a member of the Hollywood elite. The only reason he's not a member of the Hollywood elite is because nobody will hire him to be one. And you know, the reason I'm talking about this is because my son had an open heart surgery and has to have two more. And because of that, I learned that there are kids with no insurance in the same situation. I don't get anything out of this, Brian, you phony little creep. Oh, I'll pound you when I see you. I'll pound you when I see you, he says. That was Jimmy Kimmel, who's supposed to be a comedian. He's, he's, and I guess that crowd figures we just laugh because Jimmy Kimmel said something, so I have to laugh now. Uh, not funny. Not funny, not cool. I have to tell you, one thing you should always be on the lookout for in media is anyone who uses private person-to-person conversations for public disputes like that. I have no idea about any interactions between uh, Brian Kilmeade and Jimmy Kimmel. All I know is that every time I've interacted with Brian Kilmeade, he's been a really stand-up nice guy. That's all I can. So, but but I have you know I don't know what what their relationship is like, but I don't care because whenever whenever somebody it, it's an ironclad rule. Whenever somebody in the media business 
where it's so easy to take things out of context. It's so easy to to try to hurt someone's reputation or just take them down a notch by spreading something about them, whether it's true or not. Anyone who does that thing, oh, let me tell you what so-and-so said to me in the green room, or let me tell you what so-and-so said when I saw him at a cocktail party. Anyone who pulls that stuff is, is a jerk, is a jerk. There's what's said on air, that's public, that's public domain, that's out there for everybody. There's what's said on the record, that's out there for everybody. And then there's normal human interaction and expectation of some degree of, uh, of respect and, and privacy between professionals in this business. And Jimmy Kimmel's got a reputation for being a mean guy. I should know that that's been out there for a long time. He's a comedian, but he's mean. Uh, and I know he cries when a lion in Africa dies because that really got him very, very, very upset. Uh, I haven't seen him cry. I should note uh, about anything that's gone on in Iraq or Afghanistan. I haven't seen him cry when talking about veterans. And the, but he cried when a lion got shot in, in Africa. that's the only time I've ever seen the guy cry on TV. That's all I can tell you. And and I love animals as as much, if not more, than the next guy. But, you know, I I think that there's something off about this fellow. And I think that using a a personal medical story, for every personal medical story that's out there about how I want people to have Obamacare, I can tell stories about not being able to see the doctor I want to see, not being able to afford the doctor I want to go see because of the system we're in. Uh, you know, waiting an inordinately long amount of time before getting to see a doctor. I mean, we, we can all we can all do the personal anecdote thing to try and make our policy seem more humane and better. But even putting all that aside on the healthcare thing, it's just so disappointing that comedians, especially comedians who were at the height of the profession or paid millions and millions of dollars, they can't just make us laugh. You know, they can't. Laughter is such an important part of our society humor is such an important part of america i really mean that our ability to laugh at things to laugh at our leaders to laugh at ourselves it's essential you know it keeps you going it helps you through dark days and people who have the ability to make the masses laugh that's a real gift and to see so many colbert and kimmel and stewart and go down the line to see them squandering it because they want to score political points with the hollywood left it's just it's just disappointing, man. It's just gross. And also to say that kind of stuff, look, Brian handled it like a class act and good for him. But Jimmy Kimmel just came across like a jerk. And I, I, and I really do wish he would just be funny. All right, we're going to have Team Buck Speaks coming up here in just a second. So stay with me for that. We'll be right back. Matt Lewis says, look, Jimmy Kimmel shouldn't focus on health care policy. He should focus on being funny. This is an American citizen who, aside from his job and aside from being rich, which he admits I can afford this coverage for my kid, even if insurance didn't cover it. He's an American citizen who has a kid born with a serious uh, condition that requires, as MJ just reported, up to a million dollars in surgeries. An American citizen, she says. So that means that he has he has a right to speak about it. No one's saying, I mean, this is just continuing. I didn't want to spend as much time on the Jimmy Kimmel thing today as I already have. I know. And, and we're going to get to Team Buck Speaks here in just a just a couple of minutes. I've got some some great uh, feedback and thoughts and, and suggestions from all of you. But I, first, I used to do Poppy's weekend show over at CNN um, when they, they would have me on. And I remember with her a few times, I would say, hey, Poppy, um, why is it? And so this is, again, this is in a room full of people, right? So this wasn't a private conversation. I would say with the producers listening and everybody, me mic'd up, but in the commercial break, uh, why is it that I'm introduced as a conservative political commentator 
But the leftist Democrat talking points, obsessed, uh, bomb throwing uh, smear squad that keeps coming on, whether you know, from different different uh, Democrat talking heads here and there. Why are they just political analysts? So it's like conservative political comment. Oh, they also used to sometimes say worked for Glenn Beck's The Blaze. And I would kind of sometimes say and also worked for the CIA, served in war zones, worked for the NYPD, worked on counterterrorism cases, actually served my country. So why don't you back up J school grad people and show a little respect? Just just a thought. Just a thought. Uh but, I, you know, Poppy was she was like, oh, what, what do you mean? I, you know, she, it like did not compute. It was like the wires were crossed. Uh, but no, notice the desire here to defend J- Jimmy Kimmel lecturing people. Look, he can do whatever he wants. Right. He's he's in with the right people at NBC or ABC. Where NBC, ABC. Well, I don't know. Look, I do, I do not. Wa- I watch the clips of these things sometimes. I do not stay up and watch comedians who are not funny late at night. And make this. It's all the same joke. It's all, you know, Donald Trump, you know, ha-ha, sexist. Donald Trump, ha-ha, racist. It's just the jokes are not funny. Uh, the people that are trying to do this stuff uh, annoy me more than anything else. And I, if they were funny, I would watch them. But notice how even in the, the J school grad squad, right, the journalism school folks, they feel the need because they agree with Kimmel. They feel the need to back him up, even though he said, as we played the clip before, that he's going to pound somebody. That's really irresponsible. You know, I know he's a comedian, but that's an irresponsible thing for him to say about someone that he has had person to person contact with. And, you know, that's that's in in another context. I promise you, if a prominent right wing imagine for a second, just imagine for a second. And uh, he's just the first one that comes to mind. So if if Bill O'Reilly had gone on air and said that he was going to pound some. Uh, that he was going to pound John Stewart and said it in a really nasty way. We, we, there would be think pieces on Slate and Huffington Post. They'd be like, oh, my gosh, Bill O'Reilly's advocating violence. What is wrong with him? You'd see so much of that. But because they like Jimmy Kimmel's politics, because they they like the way that he uh, is presenting this issue, he's, he wants single payer. Well, yeah, he's a big fancy talk about how, you know, oh, you know, there are a lot of people that have dealt with health care problems of all kinds. And we don't just put one after another up there and say, well, what, what do you think, person who has a sympathetic personal story? Uh, but Kimmel wants single payer. He wants single payer. But I promise you, if we started taxing wealth instead of taxing income, a lot of these folks who are talking about single payer in Hollywood and on the East Coast who are super rich, they would change their tune. OK, OK. Team Buck speaks. I promised it. It's coming in just a few. Stay with me. Coming up. Is Donald Trump going to be called to testify to Congress? Michael Liskoff has the latest on that. Stop the hammering. Stop the hammering out there. Who's got a hammer? Where is it? I don't know. Where's the hammer? Is it on the... Go up on the other floor. Somebody go up there and stop the hammering. Stop the hammering. Stop the hammering. (laughs) I love it, man. That was uh, MSN. Stop the hammering. You know, that's MSNBC's Lawrence O'Donnell having a total freak out. I think I mentioned this last night on the show. And it was it's just one of those moments that as somebody who's done a a fair amount of TV and and a lot of radio, you just got to assume that the mic is always live and you're always being recorded. And and he forgot that very important rule Or, or he just doesn't care. 
all that much. I also think it's kind of funny, and uh, I love our folks, uh, Team Buck folks up in the Boston area. You probably picked this up too, that Lawrence O'Donnell's uh, Boston accent, when he gets really angry, you know, when he wants to go a little tough guy, all of a sudden he starts to sound a little Southie, you know, stop the hammering. <laughs> it's pretty awesome. Oh, man. Yeah, it's good. It's, it's, people have, you know, sometimes words come out. Whenever Molly tells me that she's really t- tired, she says tired. And I'm like, is that because you lived is that because you lived in some different parts of the country where they have different accents? And she doesn't think it's as funny as I do. I'm like, oh, I'm tired, too. Uh, but yeah, there's Lawrence O'Donnell. Stop the hammering. Uh, good stuff, man. It was. Oh, and I couldn't play on air all of it. It's like a eight minute long clip. But he he goes on to just curse up a storm. I mean, he loses it. And someone on his staff had just had enough. And this is what happens. Uh, it's one of the reasons why you've, other than just being a decent and considerate human being, you always got to be nice to your staff in the media business, and you got to have them on your side. In fact, you really want people that work for you and with you to feel like a family, and if they don't, stuff like this can happen. So I, I, the the whole clip is worth it. Yes, there are some mashups out there now with MC Hammer and you know Hammer Time and Stop the Hammering that you, you've just got to see. Uh, I also wanted to uh, add in a, a Team Buck Speaks segment here because people uh, listening to the show, I, I think the reaction to this has been really positive. People listen on podcast, and I love our live callers, and it's really great to have that on-air live interaction. But I know a lot of you listen uh, on a delay, or you listen on the iHeart app when you can get to it, or you listen on the podcast. And so by uh, writing to me on Facebook, it, it gives me the opportunity to uh, communicate with you back and forth. And I wanted to share some more. And we're going to keep doing this, I think, because it adds a a fun layer to the show. Team Buck Speaks. So here we go. Richard writes, Since my wife is also my office manager, and since I've been blessed to be very busy, a slow cooker, or as we call it, a crock pot, has been a lifesaver. My wife has some insanely good recipes, including a chicken taco soup that is to die for. It's a great winter dinner that we can actually get several meals out of. It's also a great way to take a cheaper piece of meat and have it turn out absolutely tender while using a can of Coke, the acid tenderizes. I'll send you her recipes. That's from Richard. Well, Richard, that sounds awesome. And I do know that people call it a crock pot, too. And I'm planning this weekend to engage in my first uh, pork crock pot excursion, assuming I don't get too busy with other things, that's the way. Uh, that's the way the weekend's going to go. So, uh, looking forward to that. And please do send me those recipes, you guys. If you want to send me a message, including recipes for the crockpot, Facebook.com/slash BuckSexton. All right, more Team Buck speaks. We've got Adam here. Quote. Well, and you know I'm quoting because it's his message. <laughs> Sorry. Quote. Quote the Adam. Uh, Love the history deep dives. I would like to share a quick story. My 12 year old daughter and I were driving to a soccer tournament, and I asked her what she had studied this week. She said the Ottoman Empire and the soldiers called Janissaries. I told her that meant new soldier, and she asked me how I knew that. So for the next hour, we listened to the Thursday Siege of Malta show. We made it into the Friday show, but she is squeamish and was not cool with the decapitations. Yeah, I can imagine. It was very cool to share some good dad-daughter time and discussion Thanks for a great show and Shields High. Well, Adam, thank you for the uh, awesome anecdote. I'm really glad you and, and your 12-year-old daughter got a chance to listen 
to the uh, Malta Deep Dive. The final installment is coming tomorrow night in the third hour of the show. So uh, the, the, the end of the siege of Malta, I got a little delayed. The siege went on longer than I expected. But the end of the siege will be tomorrow night. And uh, I also have some other, uh, I have some other history uh, segments, shows, not full shows, but segments planned, including uh, the siege of Vienna, the first uh, siege of Vienna by the Ottoman Turks, and then the Battle of Lepanto on October 7th. Uh, 1571, although it's 2017 this year. You know what I mean. But Adam, anyway, I'm glad you glad you're able to drop some janissary knowledge and had a good time uh, with your daughter. And, and thank you so much for writing in. Steve uh, writes the following: I've been listening to you for a few years now. Thanks for offering a refreshing and honest perspective. Uh, truly intelligent, guided by experience. Keep up the historical deep dives. Always enlightening and entertaining. Keep up the good work and stay safe in Gotham. Shields high. That's from Steve. Steve, really appreciate it. You know, the attaboys from everybody uh, listening out there means a lot. Uh, The radio business takes a tremendous amount of time and energy uh, out of, well, anyone who's doing this, but me in particular. I I spend my whole day getting ready for this show, which is why it's uh, information dense, and I try to make it as rich and entertaining and engaging as I possibly can, and because I go a little later in the day than some other hosts, I feel like it's my my obligation and my advantage to use that time to just do a tremendous amount of research and just thinking about what I'm going to discuss on the show. Um, so anyway, thank you very much, Steve. Appreciate it, and Shields High to you. Adam writes, <laughs> oh, here we go, dad bod advice. I, I've been asking for this one, and I did get to the gym today, I'll have you know. Single leg lunges are brutal. They're just brutal. You know, I'd much rather just get on the bench, throw up some weights a few times, you know, do the whole, you know, caveman bench, push weight hard thing. Uh, But, you know, it's actually single leg lunges and planks. And these are the things that one needs to do to get stabilizer muscles for the heavier weights. And I've done all the research and the training, uh, the mental training. Now I have to actually do the physical training. So that's a tough part of this. But here's what Adam says, trying to help me out. For counteracting the dad bod, take a look into the ketosis diet. I'm down 25 pounds and half a belt for the first time in a long time after two months. The hardest part is the first three days, then it's easy. It's all about cutting carbs down to 20 grams a day. And you can eat as much cheese, meat, and protein you want and watch the weight fall off. Thanks, Adam. I've done uh, low carb before. In fact, because I'm celiac, I tend to eat a pretty low carb diet. Uh, these days I'm, I'm eating some carbs, but really keeping it minimal. Uh, but I really appreciate the advice. And, you know, I'm, I'm not yet there to embrace the, uh, the, the dad bod because I'm not a dad. So as soon as I become a dad, oh man, then it's going to be all kinds of, uh, you know, buffalo wings and gluten-free pizza and great stuff. Michael uh, writes the following. Quick note for Michael. Time to get the band back together. Commie Bear, Angus, etc. Michael, I, I assure you, those are all in the mix. I, I really wanted the, uh, the Team Buck folks who are new or newer to get a chance to know me and, and the, uh, the intellectual rigor with which I approach the serious topics on the show before things get a little, too, a little, a, a little silly and we're just having some fun together. So that's one of the reasons why I've... Uh, been keeping some of our favorite characters from the Buck Sexton show, uh, just keeping them on the shelf. Uh, they're not, they have not been abandoned. They have not been tossed in the trash by any means. They're just on the shelf. Uh, but you will be seeing more of Commie Bear and Jean-Jacques, the 
Marxist millionaire uh, and Angus McManus, the belligerent Scottish barkeep, all of that. Yeah, so you just got to stay tuned and they'll be making their way into the show. Kendra writes, what happened to the final installment of the Siege of Malta? I totally love your history lessons. Kendra, uh, tomorrow night is the plan. We will have the final installment on Malta. I cannot leave you uh, hanging with whether or not the Ottomans, you know, what happened with the Ottomans completely surrounding the Knights of St. John and the prospect of complete annihilation of that uh, crusader order and the possibility of a beachhead for a major invasion of the heart of Europe. I, I can't just leave that out there, so I will finish that tomorrow. I, I do appreciate, I should note, all of the messages, and I could have done an entire Team Buck Speaks tonight just on the both uh, recommendations for history deep dives as well as uh, how much you all seem to appreciate it. They require a lot of research and a lot of legwork on my part and the part of the team here in New York. So it's important to me that people enjoy them and get something out of it because otherwise, you know, I can just sit here and be like, yeah, you see what's going on with Trump today? It's crazy. You know, I know a lot of hosts do that and that's fine. And some people want that from different folks. But I, I try to bring different things to the table and it's a little uh, out there. Not a lot of radio hosts doing are doing live shows, doing live radio and doing a history broadcast as part of the show. Uh, so when you tell me that you like it, it gives me the latitude to do more of them. But Siege of Malta will be finished tomorrow. And Kendra, thank you so much for saying you totally love my history lessons. Um, Evan writes the following. Elton John and Billy Joel overrated. You're killing me, Smalls. Although Springsteen is definitely overrated. Okay, Evan, as long as we can agree that Springsteen is overrated, I, I would be willing to negotiate the degree of overrated for the others. Billy Joel, I do like some of his stuff, and, and Elton John, too. It's The only ones that I, I just have, I can't budge on are Springsteen and Bob Dylan. When people tell me Bob Dylan is America's poet, and then I turn to them and I say, really? Uh, do you, when was the last time you decided, you chose, for any reason, to listen to a Bob Dylan song, and the, I tend to hear crickets chirping. And they, it just, we've been conditioned. Bob Dylan is America's poet. Bob Dylan is amazing. And the same thing with Springsteen. Oh, Springsteen, who loves America? Actually, Springsteen has pretty left-wing politics and can be really annoying and sanctimonious. But, you know, he has one line, born in the USA. And everyone's like, oh, he must be all about America and the, and the working man from New Jersey. Springsteen's all about wearing leather vests uh, and traveling around in a private jet. I mean, that's all I know about the guy other than his music is really overrated. I feel like he wears the same leather vest all the time. Am I missing something? It's like he's got one. He's like Steve Jobs. It was always wearing like a black turtleneck and New Balance sneakers. Uh, Springsteen's always wearing a shirt with sleeves rolled up and a black leather vest. And anyway, people people love him, though. People love Springsteen. I gotta got to put it out there. Uh, Susie and Andy write, love the history, deep dives, uh, struggling to read all the books you recommend, starting Escape from Camp 14 today, then returning to The Ascent of Money. Let me just say for those listening, uh, Escape from Camp 14 is a is a must read and you'll you'll go through it quickly. It's tough to read. It's a it's it's hard emotionally and psychologically, but it's a really, really important book and you'll get through it uh, easily because it'll keep your attention the Ascent of Money, Neil Ferguson, it's a, you know, it's a little, eh. it's got some interesting stuff, but a lot of explaining to you how the finance markets work. And it's, it's written really, I think, for a, 
uh, an audience that finds just finance, modern day finance, fascinating. So I did not, I did not think it was as awesome as some of the other things that I have recommended. Escape from Camp 14, though, must, must read. Uh, and then one more from Team Buck Speaks today. Uh, William, uh, William, rather, he's not calling me William. William writes, I love well done steak and Bob Dylan, and I'm a conservative combat veteran. You just roasted me, Buck. And he's got a laughing, smiley face emoji here. Um, William, first of all, thank you for your service. And uh, second of all, man, you, you served your country. If you want your steak well done, you want to rock out to the Bob Dylan all day, that is your prerogative, my friend. You know, God bless. Um, well done steak. I will tell you that sometimes I'll get my steak somewhat well done if I think that I'm a little worried about the quality of the food in the place where I am because well done means you're less likely to get foodborne illness. So there's that. And Bob Dylan, I guess we'll just uh, agree to disagree, but we both love freedom, William, and I really appreciate you writing me. All right, that's going to be it for Team Buck Speaks and for the show today. Uh, Thank you so much for hanging out with me here, team. Please do download the podcast, Buck Sexton with America Now, on iTunes or listen on the iHeart app anywhere across the country anytime. Tell your friends about the show. Spread the word far and wide. And until tomorrow when we have a Freestyle Friday, Shields High.